If you have a Bible this morning, I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 9. We've been studying through Romans as a church, and we're going to resume our study together. But as you're turning to Romans 9, I would like you to listen to four words. Words you probably have heard before once, if not a million times. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. I don't know four more important or four more profound words than those four words. The problem is, sometimes familiarity breeds indifference, if that makes sense. I've heard it so many times that when I hear those four words, in the beginning, God, I know it's Genesis 1.1, that's how the Bible starts, I've heard it so many different times, I agree with it, and that's kind of the end of it. Instead of stopping to consider and ponder the significance of those four words, which is what I'm asking you to do now. In the beginning, in the Genesis, in the beginning, God. And then it goes on to say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Think about that. Independent of us, independent of everything, without counselors, without input, without committee vote. God created the heavens and the earth. He created according to His own free choice. Why? Because He's God. Sovereignly, He decided to create and so He created. It's pretty amazing. And then we read on, among other things, one of the high points ends up being He created man, and then He creates woman. And He didn't ask for some kind of committee to weigh in and give Him advice on this. According to His own independence, according to His own freedom as God, He sovereignly decided to make a man and to make a woman. And then another high point would be God then gave His law. And once again, as a broken record, I'll say He gave His law because it's what He wanted to do because He's God. He chose to do that. No committee, no vote, no advice. Sovereignly, He decided. Why? Because He's God. And then we see human rebellion take place. And He responds according to His justice. He responds according to His love. He responds according to His mercy. But He does so independent of our opinion, of Adam and Eve's opinion, of the angel's opinion. He just does what He wants to do. And it's right for Him to do what He wants to do because again, He's God. In fact, maybe what I should say is not the four significant words. It's really the one significant word. Listen to this significant word. God. I just take that for granted. So many times when I hear God, I don't even think about what I'm dealing with or what I'm talking about. I don't know about you. You're probably like me. And it's so important that we stop and remember the significance and the weightiness of what we're talking about or who we're talking about. Because otherwise... Even though I say God and, and, and I, I, I will tell you that I mean Yahweh, the one true God, the God of Israel, 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So many times my mindset is, while I'll say that and articulate that on paper, my mindset is, when I say God, I mean I dream of genie. Because the God I'm talking about is not free, is not independent, is not sovereign. And somehow I need to be okay with the decisions he makes. And we don't want to go there. It's also really important that we stop and remember we're talking about, when we talk about God, in the beginning, God, independent, sovereign, God, when it comes to the matter of salvation, when it comes to the matter of God extending His grace, extending His mercy, it is so crucial that we remember we're talking about God extending His grace. God extending His mercy, and therefore He can act like the one who is independent, the one who is free, the one who is sovereign. Otherwise, we'll not be able to make heads or tails out of God. We'll not be able to make heads or tails out of, out of salvation, really. And that brings us to Romans 9, where we learn about the sovereign grace of God. That's my way of trying to say, please, when you read the Bible, please, when, when you learn about salvation, when you read Romans chapter 9, which, which is a stiff chapter, it's a controversial chapter. I, I think if, they ever, if you guys ever have me leave this church and say, there's the door, Pat, when I candidate at some other church and they want to decide whether or not they want to have me as their pastor, I'm preaching Romans 9. Because I'll find out real quick if they really like me or not. I'll find out really quick whether or not they really want a Bible teacher. It's one of those controversial chapters and you just think, oh my goodness, what are we going to do with a God like this? But that's how we shouldn't be thinking. If we can just go back to how it all begins, if we can go back to the ultimate Genesis, if we can go back to that which is the most foundational and basic, in the beginning God created we're talking about God who's in charge. We're talking about the God who is God-like. And so it's a great privilege for us to know anything about grace, God giving us what we don't deserve, God's mercy, God withholding the wrath that we do deserve. But remember, we're talking about God's grace. It belongs to Him, and He is God, so He does with it what He wants to do. It will help us so much when we look at a passage like this. Romans 9 is about the sovereign grace of God, the sovereign mercy of God. And we've been seeing in Romans chapter 9, there are four big questions about sovereign grace. Four big questions about sovereign grace. We've been looking at the first three big questions. We'll review those this morning. We'll look at the fourth big question this morning. We'll tie a bow on it and say, Merry Christmas, there's Romans 9. And... Uh, <laughs> Then what we will do, because even though there are four big questions in this passage, there's more than four questions, but there's four big ones, I know that this brings up lots of questions from us, questions from me, questions from you. I've tried to answer some of them. I've tried to raise some of them. But in two weeks, what we will do, Lord willing, is we'll have a, an entire Sunday morning dedicated to interacting with, with questions about Romans 9. 
And so I'll think up a bunch of questions. Some of you have been asking me questions. If you want to email a question, you can email a question. If you go to the website uh, and look at the blog section, it'll give you directions on how to do that. I think it's Romans 9 at omahabiblechurch.org, but don't quote me on that. Just look at the website. I would love to know what's on your mind, uh, just to, to, to be able to, to do a good job uh, helping out in two weeks, okay? Put your seatbelt on. Uh, it's good that you're seated. I feel like I, I should sit down when I preach Romans 9 because it kind of puts us in our place. And uh, just a great, great, healthy reminder that we're talking about God here. God who's gracious, but God who's gracious as he, see, he sees fit as God. Question number one is, is God a failure? Is God a failure? It's implied in the answer that's given in verse 6. Look there with me where it says, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. He expects the question to be coming up in the white spaces, if you will, uh, just before that. He's saying, no, 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 it's not that the Word of God has failed, which is to say it's not that God has failed. Now, he would say that because... After Romans chapter 8, we hear that as Christians, we're secure, salvation is sure, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, love of God in Christ Jesus. And so then he assumes if we think long enough and hard enough, we're going to say something like, hmm, it seems to me, if I recall correctly, God in the Old Testament talks a lot about Israel. Yeah. And if I recall correctly, which I don't, he promised to save all of them. And he didn't. So why, why should I trust him to save me when he promises to save me in Romans chapter 8? But I didn't recall correctly. And that's what the Apostle Paul has to help us with here. He gives a couple of examples to show that, that this is not the case. God has not failed. Look at verse 6 where he goes on to say, talking about Isaac, for not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named, quoting Genesis 21.12. Right there, we're already seeing something of God's distinguishing nature in His actions. We're already seeing, as I've been saying over and over again, and I'm going to keep saying because I kind of want to have it rattling around in your mind, it was not God's intent to be a universalist. It wasn't even God's intent to be a universalist when it comes to the nation of Israel. He wasn't trying to save all of them. If he would have been trying to save all of them, we know he didn't save all of them because so many of them have rejected his Messiah, then we wouldn't be able to believe Romans 8. So much of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is just to get you as a Christian to be able to say, Romans 8 is really true. So he gives that first example. Then he says in verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, for this is... What the promise said, Genesis 17, Genesis 18, about this time next year, I shall return and Sarah shall have a son. That's distinguishing. God is distinguishing. He's, he's working through Sarah in that instance. Moving on in verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they, referring to the twins in her womb, were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His call. Verse 12, she was told the older will serve the younger. And then verse 13 says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What does this mean? 
I think it means what it says. What it means is we're dealing with a God who extends His sovereign grace. And He extends it as He sees fit. And He does not extend His sovereign saving grace universally. And so, has God failed? He says, no, God has not failed. God is sovereign in giving His grace. Do you see two historical examples? Yeah, He gives two historical examples that are undeniably true. There they are, right there under our noses. God is a choosing God. You know, in one sense, we're made in God's image, and even though it's distorted and twisted because of the fall, we are choosing people, and that reflects the image of God. We say yes to some and no to others. This is the kind of God we're dealing with here who is sovereign in His grace. He is not a failure. He didn't owe it to any of these people and we'll talk about that when we deal with the questions of Romans 9. But He didn't owe it to to either of the sons, Jacob or Esau. But He chose to extend His mercy and His grace to one of them. And why must this be? We've seen why this must be in verse 11, but by way of review, halfway through the verse in verse 11, he sort of breaks in in his flow of thinking, and it's so awesome that he says this, in order that, he's answering the question, why is God going to do it this way? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. That's so utterly helpful. And I'll repeat it again and emphasize it again and again and again and again. If God owed His mercy and His grace to those twins, then it couldn't be called grace. Grace is God giving a gift that is not earned, is not deserved. And so God could have, yes, given it to both of them. But if He needed to give it to both of them to be fair, then we just couldn't call it grace anymore. Please stop and pause and think as professing Christians who say the word grace so much, so often, please remember that even though we may not say it every time, we mean sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. Because if it is not free for God to give as He sees fit, but that He must give it under obligation, it's not grace. Because He must, and it's deserved. See, there's a lot at stake here. We're not talking about, you know, just these high theological ideas. We've moved beyond the gospel, and now we're talking about, you know, these these difficult doctrines. You know what really at stake in in all of this ultimately is the gospel because we're talking about is it free or is it not? It's really important that we see it this way. It's not because of works. If If it's another way, if it's deserved, if God owes it to them, then it is of works in essence. Let's move on to number two. This is review. You're like, yeah, hurry up. I know all this stuff already. No, you don't. (laughs) Because neither do I. 
That's a huge question. The next big question comes as a result of the first one. Number two, is God unfair? Nine to four, or verses 14 to 18. This is the question he anticipates. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You know, it's like Paul can hear the boos and the hisses, right? That's not fair. You know, the hecklers are there throwing toilet paper and fruit at him or something. He anticipates it. He anticipates it. And his response is, by no means. By no means. And he gives a couple of arguments. First one, verses 15 to 16. For he says to Moses in Exodus 33, 19, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, that is God's mercy from verse 15, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is the stuff we talked about in the introduction. He's, in a sense, you know, just reminding us of Genesis. We're talking about God, and and, and He does whatever He wants to do by nature of the fact that He's God. That's what we're talking about here. God unfair? No, God is just acting a lot like God when He does this. God having mercy. I love it that throughout this whole passage, too, over and over again, he's just quoting Bible verses. Bible verses, Bible verses, Bible verses. Paul isn't making some, up some new doctrine. He's saying, you know, what I'm giving you is the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. I'm just reminding you of what's biblical. And that's helpful that he does it that way. He gives a second argument for this fairness of God business. For the Scripture, verse 17 says, For the Scripture, Exodus 9.16, says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose, I have raised you up. That's sovereignty right there. That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, verse 18 says, He has mercy on whomever He wills and He hardens whomever He wills. Once again, you see the same pattern. God is free to act like God. Be good with it. Be amazed by grace that you've experienced it at all, if you have. And you know what? Be good with God being God-like. That's all. That's all this is about. God unfair? By no means. Fair, and we'll talk more about this in the questioning. I've been alluding to it and mentioning it. Fair would be that we all go to hell. That's fair. Wages of sin is death, and you're a sinner, and so am I. You're smoked. Fair? Fairness doctrine? God is fair. He's just. There's no injustice on his part. He's not, he's not committing a foul. He raised him up for a purpose. He's free to act like God. Let's move on to the third question that this raises, and it's in verses 19 to 23. Is God to blame? That's the next thing we're going to anticipate. Uh, Verse 19 says, You will say to me then, in light of verse 18, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Remember last time I said, This is where, where sinners try to wrestle God and take God's gun from him, if you will, and aim it at God. 
This is the person who still doesn't believe in the sovereignty of God. They're all bent out of shape about the godness of God. They're all bent out of shape about the freedom of God. And, and they say, all right, fine, you believe that? All right, I'll just assume it for sake of argument. But I'm going to take that gun from you and I'm going to aim it at you, God, and say, you're the problem. Bad image, I know. But we've all had conversations with people, or maybe not. I've had plenty of conversations with people where they don't believe this, you talk them through it, and they, in essence, then try to use it against God. Not to mention you. And he's saying, all right, I'll play that game. Maybe he's saying, I know you want to go there. So let's just talk about the rationale of such thinking. Is God to blame? You're going to say, it's Pharaoh. He's morally not accountable because God is sovereign anyway. Sovereign grace, sovereign grace, sovereign grace. God's at fault then. Hmm. This is a bad idea. Verse 20. Um, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Isn't that a great verse? <laughs> so you have a God complex. Pal, you know, boy, girl, chump. It's one of those kind of things. Do, do you realize what's happening here when you try to, try, try to play this game? It's not good. It's not good at all. like some Clint Eastwood scene or something. Punk. (laughs) I'm not comparing God to Clint Eastwood. I'm comparing the Apostle Paul to Clint Eastwood. (laughs) Punk. It's one of those that puts you in your chair and you're like, you must have read my mind because that's how I was thinking and now I'm seeing this is a really, really bad idea. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Remember, 1 Timothy 6 says he's the only sovereign. I love that title. Verse 20 goes on to say, Well, what does Moldes say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? You know, pots don't put potters on trial ridiculous this doesn't make any sense if you're a potter you in essence are God over the clay you're the creator you're the designer you can do whatever you want and never once before you put it in the fiery kiln are you going to hear from the clay talking back to you it's totally dumb totally stupid and he wants us all if we're wanting to take God's gun away from him and aim it at him to feel totally dumb and totally stupid. Because we're talking about God. We're talking about God who, who does whatever He wants to do by nature of the fact that He, he is God. And, and then I, I love it that He gets gracious. You know, because 20 is not very gracious. 20 is kind of Clint Eastwood-ish. Okay? And 21 kind of is too. And so, now that you're offended, he's like, all right, come on. I needed to give you a bloody nose. 
You needed it. But, you know, it's like, okay, let me be a brother. Let, let me be a, a friend. Let me put my arm around you and, and just be reasonable, okay? That's the next two verses. Verse 22 says, what, what, what if God, let, let's just theorize here, but he's actually not theorizing. This is how it is, but he's trying to bring you into the conversation. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and, and he does, and it's just wrath. We learned about it in chapter 1. We learned about it in chapter 2. And to make known his power, which is also a good thing because he's God. What if that's how it was? And then it says, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. You know, would you be okay with that? I'm afraid to ask, but... That's in essence what he's saying. And he's assuming we all have enough common sense to say, I'd be okay with that. I'd be be all right if God wanted to do that. If he'd wanted to show his wrath, show his power, you know what? He has every right. He's a just God. I've read Romans 1, 2, 3 and following. Okay. Well, then, then let's move on to 23. In order to make known the riches of His glory, four vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Ah, let's not get in the business of blaming God. You know what? He has the right to dump His wrath out on Pharaoh and vessels of wrath. He has every right to do that because He's a just and righteous God. But you know what? What's so amazing is He's withholding that for a time, even for your benefit as one who is a vessel of mercy and to show how great His glory is in saving people. You can, you, well, you can, but he, in essence, He's saying you can't argue with that. I mean, he's assuming you as a professing Christian are, are, are one of these very vessels, vessels of mercy. And why is it that so many times that it's Christians who have such a big beef with God being sovereign and showing His grace to whoever He wants to? Because they're the ones who've received His grace. And he's assuming that we're in that kind of position, saying, you should be okay with this. He withheld His judgment that, that Pharaoh should have received you know, when he breathed his first breath, if not sooner. He was patient and kind, you know what, in part to show you how great salvation is. To show you how great and how privileged you are to be a vessel of mercy. Let's not, let's not, let's not blame God. Let's see Him as, as glorious. And, and let's see Him as, as merciful. That's 22 and 23. The kindness of God, the greatness of God, the glory of God. And now that we're done reviewing, let's start a new sermon. I got 40 minutes from right now, right? You don't even give me courtesy laughs. You're like, yeah, now you did. That's pretty good. All right. Now, we look at the final question that's asked and answered. And that is this. Is God inclusive? Is God inclusive? That's a weird question to ask in light of the first three questions, I think. Is God broad? You know, we've been talking about Him giving mercy, withholding mercy. That seems exclusive, and it is. But is God also inclusive? Is He also broad? And the answer to the question is going to be, you know what, He is. Maybe not in the way you'd want Him to be, but He is. 
We shouldn't be arguing with, with the way God does things. There's definitely a wideness here that's, that's grand and glorious. And, and he asks and answers the question in verse 24, but it assumes 23. So 23, we've got vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. And we're all good with that. We're all good with that kind of sovereignty. And then, is God inclusive? Verse 24 says, Even us, us believers, us vessels of mercy, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And the answer is a positive, yeah! Stop and think about how great this salvation is. Think about how awesome this is. Remember when he says those whom he called? He's talking about saved people according to God's perfect plan that begins before time begins. Remember Romans 8, 28, 29, 30, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Remember that great, great plan of redemption that God has? It's, it's unbreakable and it's sure. And here he's saying, look, that plan, because he's picking up on that called idea, that plan includes Jews, but not only Jews, it includes Gentiles. This is absolutely amazing. This is an amazing reality. There is a broadness here. There is a breadth here. This might not be great news to you, but it is to you if you're a Gentile. Because we're included it's Jews and Gentiles. Maybe I should put it this way. This doesn't seem like a very big deal to us. But it's a big deal to you if you're a Jew and you think only Jews are in. Right? It's a big deal if you're a Christian living in the 21st century and you read your Old Testament thinking all Jews are going to heaven. Or it's a big deal to you if, once again, bigger argument, if you read your Bible and you think God was trying to save all of the Jews, but couldn't do it. And now he's going to get back to his original argument. God is including Jews and Gentiles, but he's not including all Jews. For that matter, he's not including all Gentiles. So in essence, he's just getting back to what he was talking about in verse 6. God wasn't trying to be a universalist, but he does include Jews and Gentiles. Look at his argumentation. First he quotes Hosea chapter 2 and verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea chapter 2, those who are were not my people I will call. I think we should see the calling theme. I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Now for those in the Jewish audience that he's got to address, he's saying, look, you guys need to go back and you need to read your Old Testament a little bit closer. Yes, God promised His covenants. Yes, they are His nation. Yes, 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 yes. You know that I know that I've already talked about that in this very book. In this chapter. But you've got to go back and remember that he is including Gentiles. See, this gets back to the sovereign grace of God. He, according to divine design, was not just giving his grace to Jews. He was giving his grace to Gentiles. And it's his prerogative to do that. 
And then he quotes Hosea 1. And in the very place, this is verse 26, in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. Same thing. Saying the same thing essentially. Showing them, especially Jews, in their Old Testament that God includes Gentiles. It goes back to sovereign grace. I'll just keep saying. He does what He wants. He does what He wants. Saves Gentiles. Saves Jews. It's His grace. But we should be pretty excited about this, as most of us are Gentiles. We shouldn't be having a big problem with God doing what He wants. We should be saying, hey, look at this. This is great. But then an objector is going to come and say, and by now you think they'd have it figured out. You'd think we'd have it figured out. But the objector is going to say something like, but, but what about the fact that all Israelites are going to heaven? But what about the fact that since they're His covenant people, that means all Jews are saved? And Paul has to say, um, what about the fact? Um, that's a factual not actually the case. And that's why he has verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. What does that mean? You all know what that means if you just read it. What does what, what he say? Verse 27. So, as the sand of the sea, there are a lot of Israelites, right? There's a ton of Israelites. But then he says, only a remnant of them will be saved. Quoting from Isaiah. We know what it means. Amidst all of the physical Israelites, you know what? There's a portion of them. There's a remnant of them that will be saved. That's what he's saying. What does this contribute in his argument? Once again, sovereign grace, sovereign grace, sovereign grace. God wasn't trying to save all the Jews and failed. You know what? There's many, many of them, but there's a remnant. There's a remnant that will be saved. Verse 28 is pretty harsh where it says, For the Lord, seems like most of the time, if not every time, Paul uses Lord, he's using it in reference to Christ, which is pretty interesting since he's tying this to Isaiah. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. He's just getting back to Romans 9.6, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It seems like he's just got to keep hammering that nail and hammering that nail and hammering that nail. The verses uh, in between verse 6 and these verses, he had to go off on that rabbit trail and deal with justice and fairness, And but he's got to come back to this issue, and it seems it's because we get it wrong, we get it wrong, we get it wrong, we get it wrong. The Jews get it wrong, the Jews get it wrong, the Jews get it wrong. Because I'm a Jew, I'm in. Because I'm a Jew, I'm in. Because they're Jews, they're in. Because they're Jews, they're 
other end, and he's going, stop it already. You're not going to understand Romans 8 if you have that mindset. There are many, many Jews, and there's a remnant that will be saved. A portion will be saved. And the next verse, what does he talk about? He talks about the wrath that they will incur, so many of them. So we need to remember that even when we read our Old Testament. Certainly, I, I would want Jews to remember that when they read theirs. And then the question is going to come, but is that fair? I just, that's not fair. Here we go again. Verse 29, look there. And as Isaiah predicted, this is Isaiah 1.9, if the Lord of hosts, how about literally the Lord of armies, the Lord of warfare, sometimes translated the Lord Almighty. If the Lord of warfare, the Lord of armies, the judge, had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Again, you want to talk about fair? Man, read Isaiah 1. It's one of the harshest chapters I know in the Bible. And it'll deal with the fairness doctrine. You know what, if it were not for God, as it says in the verse, leaving us an offspring, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. So when we want to again have a problem with there being many of them, but God has a remnant that will be saved, and we say, I don't think that's fair. You know what fair is? You guys all familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, the Jews would be. That's what we deserved. That should be our testimony for here into eternity but God how about sovereign grace again but God showing his grace as the verse emphasizes if God had not left us offspring that's sovereign grace it wasn't like you know but we we're the remnant because we had our faithful offspring sovereign grace is emphasized if God had not left us offspring we'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah I can't remember if it's Sodom or Gomorrah that I've driven by in a, in a bus before. Whichever one it is, you know, you, you drive by this black and char broiled nastiness and you say, Mr. Bus Driver, what is that? Oh, that's Gomorrah or Sodom, whichever one it was. And you think, never going to forget that image. I'll forget which one it is, but I'm never going to forget that image. And you think, that's a monument of people getting what they deserved. And Paul is saying, you know all too well about Sodom and Gomorrah. And if it weren't for God giving us sovereign grace, the remnant in these offspring, that would be us. So let's stop talking about fairness and God giving what He deserve, giving us what we deserve and all of that business. It's absolutely ridiculous. Right? This is dumb. It doesn't make any sense. Sodom and Gomorrah makes sense. It makes sense for us. Desolate nothingness, wiped out, done. And whether it be 
for Israel in Isaiah 1 or for us, we can certainly relate. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's what we should be. That's what should be our testimony. Instead, what we love, sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. That's what we love. Which is really just to say grace. We love grace. We love grace. We love grace. Because the only kind of true grace is sovereign grace. And so that's what we love as believers in Jesus Christ. What we don't conclude is, oh, well, we, we, we did such a great job that God sent Jesus here for us. And, and we were so beautiful and so, so good and so helpful and we were such a good little remnant. You know? No. We're sinners. Sodom and Gomorrah-like, even if it's not in our actions, it's in our hearts. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's sovereign grace. That's no obligation. God didn't say, well, I have to send Him. No, He does it according to His own free will, according to His own pleasure, according to His own godness. And that's what He does. And then God graciously... Elects, God graciously calls, God graciously justifies, God graciously draws, God graciously does all of these things. And we say, we, we love grace. We love grace. We love sovereign grace. That's our testimony because that's the testimony of any Christian. It is so unchristian-like for us to have a beef with God and what He chooses to do with His salvation and with His grace. When we have a problem with it, we sound like pagans. We sound like biblical illiterates. We sound like punks. And there's just, this doesn't make any sense. Yes, we're growing. Yes, we're learning. Yes, some things are hard to understand. Even as Peter says, I would submit to you, this is not one of those things. This one is way too easy to understand. Maybe that's why we have such a problem with it. But let's think like Christians. Let's talk like Christians. Let's sing like Christians. Let's praise God because we don't deserve to be saved. No one deserves to be saved. And yet, God saves. He extends His grace. And we don't even know why. We're going to sing in this last song, this old Isaac Watts song. I hope we're going to sing it. We sang it at the end of first service. I'm looking for Martin. Martin, are we going to sing it? Yeah. We're going to sing the awful song. The awful song is an awesome song. And when we sing this song, please pay attention to the words. Remember Isaac Watts, man, he got himself in trouble for being too contemporary. doesn't sound contemporary, I know. Too edgy. Too much emphasis on the sovereignty of God and salvation. The awful song is a great song because... Ask good questions like, why? Why me? Because Isaac Watts knew and understood, as we should know and understand, it's not because we deserved it. It's not because God owed it to us. It's because of sovereign grace. It's because of sovereign grace. I like what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, where he tells us the reason why. I know the answer to Isaac Watts' question. Why did God choose me? Why did God choose anybody? According to His own good pleasure. Now what that means, I don't know. 
There was no good in me. There's no good in you. That's Ephesians 2. But in Ephesians 1, where he talks about God's sovereign grace, he says he chooses according to his own good pleasure. You know what? That should just sound sweet to us, even though we don't even know what it means. God found pleasure in acting like God because He's God. And He saw fit to do this, which should cause us to be like Paul. I know I say this a lot, and I'll keep saying it. It should cause us to want to be like Paul, having learned about God's good pleasure to save according to His sovereign grace. What does He do? He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. so good so good let's have it not be controversial let's all acknowledge that we're okay with God being God and have that be our testimony and not just that but to have it be our rejoicing testimony at the end of one of the stanzas to another hymn that we're not going to sing I just want to read you what it says at the third stanza of this hymn. Having said, Jesus sought me when a stranger. Having said, wandering from the fold of God. Having said, He to rescue me from danger. As well as other things. The stanza ends this way. I cannot proclaim it well. That's my testimony as a preacher. Nobody say amen. I can't proclaim it well, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to proclaim it. I'm going to proclaim it and proclaim it and proclaim it some more. And I hope and pray that that's what we would want to do as a church, to proclaim it, to proclaim it, to proclaim it, to proclaim it, to preach Christ and not ourselves. We may not be able to proclaim it well, but we're so overwhelmed with God's sovereign grace that we proclaim it and we love God for His choice because it was only because of His sovereign grace. So let's pray and then let's sing about the wonderful salvation even as we sing the awful song about it. Father, thank You for this morning and thank You for the privilege that we have to gather like this in the name of Christ. Yes, with questions. Yes, with some knots still untied in our minds. But in so many senses, God, we understand. We understand that You save. We understand that we pray for people's salvation because we know we can't save them and they can't save themselves. We pray for their salvation because we know the only way they could ever be saved is if You open their eyes, if You extend Your sovereign grace. But it depends upon You. And Lord, we know that we're saved not because of anything that we did if we're Christians. But You, according to Your good pleasure, worked in our lives. We know that Jesus Christ came into this world not because we somehow deserved it or You owed it to us, but that Jesus Christ came into this world and and lived a perfect life for sinners. And that Jesus Christ absorbed the full wrath of His Father on the cross for sinners 
who didn't deserve to have such a great sacrifice. And Jesus Christ rose again from the dead on our behalf, even though we didn't deserve to have new life. But all of these things have been done according to your grace, as you have seen fit. According to your good pleasure. May we, of all people, be staggering in our humbleness. In awe, dumbfounded, feeling no sense of right, feeling no sense of pride, but feeling a great, great, overwhelming, overpowerful, overpowering sense of gratitude and praise. And may that be the case even now as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.